If you weren't here at the announcements time, my name is Johnny. I am an assistant pastor and church planting resident at Trinity Church Seattle. Thank you for calling out the church planting work that me and my family are a part of, Austin. We are in the Maple Leaf neighborhood of Seattle, which is just south of Northgate. And, you know, please feel free to talk to me afterwards. I'd love to share any information you have with you. But let's continue in our worship this morning and bow your heads with me, and we will pray once again to our God together. Let's pray. Our God, your word never returns to you empty, and it accomplishes everything that you have planned for it, every purpose that you have, every way in which you plan for it to accomplish your will. Lord, sometimes this happens mysteriously, and we can't even see it. Sometimes it happens imperceptibly over years and decades. Sometimes it happens dramatically and seemingly instantaneously as it works in our hearts and minds to convict us, to bring us to a clearer picture of Christ, and to bring us into your presence. Lord, by your Spirit, would you do that again? Your Spirit ensures us that you are doing this. And the Lordship of Christ sees to it that this process continues again and again and again as your kingdom spreads throughout the world. Lord, there are so many competing platforms and messages that are out there that we encounter that are confusing and hard to interpret, hard to make sense of. But God, we need more churches. We need more pulpits, more platforms for the most important message, the truth of your word to go out. So Lord, we pray that you would build your kingdom. Begin here at home in this church. Lord, I thank you for this congregation of believers, for the pastors, for the elders, for the deacons, for the staff, for the many volunteers and the people who are active serving you here in this community. I pray that you would bless them together and each of them individually. Help them to grow in the knowledge of Christ and to grow in their obedience to him, that they would be a light in this place where they are. And we pray that you would plant and establish and and cause to thrive many other churches like this one and like the others that are in our communities. We pray for more. We pray for more preachers and pulpits proclaiming your word. We pray for that in Edmonds and in Seattle and throughout our nation and throughout the world. Lord, would your kingdom grow until you come again. Our Father, you are great and we are small. We are weak, and you are strong, and you are kind and compassionate, and you are gracious and so full of mercy. And because of that, we have confidence now to come into your presence, to hear from you, to listen up, and to be transformed by your word. So would you do that once again? In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. And this morning, we're going to be reading in the book of 1 John. So if you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, turn to 1 John. The words are also printed for you in the bulletin. 1 John from chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, and we're going to go to the end of verse 27. The book of 1 John, chapter 2, from verse 18. Listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not 
of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So it's almost been two years now since me and my family moved to Seattle, and we moved to a neighborhood in Seattle called Ballard, and maybe some of you are familiar with that place. We moved onto Market Street, which is a main street, and we were renting a house just a little bit east from the downtown strip of Ballard, and it's this really cool place with shops and markets, and it's really close to the water, and it was close to the church where we're serving, and all kinds of breweries, and it's a great place. Everything is walking distance. It's a really cool neighborhood. At least, it was. Soon after we moved into our house, we realized that the neighborhood around us was changing, For example, a developer had bought from our landlord our house and the other houses adjacent to it, and the plan is still to build up this five- or six-story apartment building. And similar things are happening across the street. They already began construction on that location, and in the blocks surrounding our house, they had torn down these old houses, and they're building up three or four townhomes on each lot. People are moving in, the place is transforming, it's causing all kinds of side effect, sort of issues in the community, homelessness, rats, I could go on. But what was happening, you see, is that the neighborhood was transforming before our eyes and it made us feel very unstable. The place that we thought we moved to was not that place anymore and that change was happening as we were witnessing it. We've since moved away from that neighborhood, but the experience of living there and not being sure where we were going as the neighborhood itself didn't seem to be sure where it was going was very jarring. This text that I just read and that we're going to be spending time in this morning is kind of a way for us to establish some clarity and some stability when the faith landscape around us feels just like that. Maybe the church or the churches that you once knew or thought you knew, the city, the culture around you that you once thought you knew is changing, transforming, and you don't know how to make sense of it anymore. Maybe your faith or the faith of your parents feels unstable all of a sudden, and you don't know how to make sense of that. Maybe you're new to the Christian neighborhood and you're trying to find a place where you can put down some roots, you can buy a plot of land and build, but you don't know where that can be or should be because everything seems unstable. 
a little bit about who John is writing to, his audience is probably asking similar questions because even though we don't know the details, it's fairly clear that what must have just happened or happened recently in the church that he's writing to is that a group of people left. And back when this was happening, there weren't different denominations. They weren't jumping and going to a different denomination. You were either in the church of Jesus Christ or you weren't. They left the faith altogether. And John is writing to them, trying to help them, at least in part, make sense of what just happened. And in doing so, again, his main objective is to make clear what his audience then, and certainly what we need now, in uncertain times, in order to have a faith and a life in Christ that is not just deconstructing all the time, but is sure and immovable and stable. And I think the answer to what do we need is this. We need to abide in the truth and deconstruct the lie. We need to be constantly abiding in the truth and deconstructing the lie. I want to look at that in three points this morning. First, antichrist. Second, anointing. And third, abiding. Antichrist, anointing, and abiding. So first of all, antichrist. You just let that word sort of sit with you for a little bit. Antichrist, it's a word that, at least in our tradition, we don't really talk about a whole lot. I realized before I had preached this sermon for the first time at my church a few months ago, I had never actually used the word antichrist in a sermon before. And so this is the first time, and I'm going to use it a lot more than once, because John uses it more than once, and we need to talk about it. To figure out what he's saying, though, it might take a little bit of connecting some dots here and there, so I need you to stay with me for a few minutes. And he really gets into it in verses 18 and 19. There's a connection here between verse 18 and 19. I think verse 18 is John trying to observe the current state of the spiritual climate from a cosmic and historical, kind of a big picture perspective. And then verse 19, he applies that to the church that he's writing to. And it's how he connects these two theaters of the spiritual war that gives way to his main point about the Antichrist. So let's try and follow that. So first of all, verse 18, John is reminding the church of where they are on the timeline of history based on the presence of the Antichrists, which might feel a little bit weird. But think of it this way. I think of the church basically as a character in the video game. Okay, so it's a big multiplayer video game, and we're all helping each other make our way through it. So we're going through the video game. We're killing zombies. We're saving the princess. We're collecting mushrooms, whatever it is that you did in your favorite video game. And the Antichrists are the bad guys who are getting in the way and trying to thwart us and stop us and kill us. It makes sense that there are going to be these bad guys because this is a video game, right? But also because it's a video game, we know that as we face these bad guys now, and maybe they're hard to beat, but we're kind of getting used to it and we're figuring it out, we know that there's a big one coming. So you notice how John makes this distinction between the Antichrists that are around and Antichrist that is coming. It's kind of the same kind of thing. There's a big one coming he or she or it or whatever is going to be strong and powerful, but not totally separate from the enemies that we face now. And the church will succeed because we have Christ, but it's going to get a little iffy, maybe. There's this sense of warfare that's present in this passage. And you see, he talks about antichrists and the antichrist because knowing that they're around and active... And two, knowing that their activity is a part of life in a fallen world where we're serving Christ and his church helps us make sense of what happens when a church falls apart. 
You know, there's a bit to this where John is saying, listen, you do realize that we are at war. Messy and heartbreaking and unthinkable things are going to go down before the end. But God has not left us unequipped for when that happens, even though it's heartbreaking. And it does get heartbreaking. It makes sense that enemies are going to try to get at us from outside, lobbing things at us from the outside in. But in verse 19, John seems to indicate that what happened with this church is that the enemies actually came from the inside, that the spiritual fabric was unweaving and unraveling from the inside of the church. And this is maybe even more confusing and makes it harder to figure out. Certainly when this happens, as John points out, it clarifies who was a true disciple of Christ, who was legitimate in their faith, and who was never truly a part of the true believing community in the first place. And that's a sobering thought. It is. And again, we don't really know. We can have a really good idea because of our faith and assurance of where we stand, and those that we know really well, we can have a great idea of where they stand But we don't have permission to put on our antichrist-seeking goggles and scan the room to see, oh, that person, that person, that, you know, that's, that's not what John wants us to be doing at all. We should not be looking at each other with that kind of suspicion and cynicism. That's not how we act in the family of God. Don't conflate your neighbor sitting next to you or even your next door neighbors at home as the antichrist. That's not a good way to function in life. In fact, As we drive down to his main point here, the way to be saved is not to defend ourselves against others or against other weaker people that we see, but it's to defend ourselves and our community against deception, against deception, against lies. Because this is the heart of John's teaching here about the Antichrist. When we get to verses 22 and 23, I think it's worth me reading that again. John actually tells us, by the way, who the Antichrist is. So let's listen up. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So listen, the Antichrist is not a really creepy horror movie type of creature. The Antichrist is anyone in real life who comes up with a creative new way to repackage the lie that has been plaguing us from the beginning, using often power and influence and manipulation to convince you to deny the Father and the Son by denying that Jesus is the Christ. Let me say that kind of formula again. To deny the Father and the Son by denying that Jesus is the Christ. And that's a big deal. Do you know why that's a big deal? Because union with the Father through the Son, because Jesus is the Christ, is the gospel. Being united to the Father through the Son by confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that's essentially our salvation. That's what we are doing here. You see, when you believe in Jesus in this way, you believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, John says that you have a claim on the Father, on his fatherhood for you, the same one that Christ has. You get to call him day or night as father and rely on his care for you because you are a son or a daughter of the father. He loves you as much as he loves his own son. If you believe in Jesus, 
The good news of the Son of God is meant to convince us of the Father's love. The connection between the Son and the Father is so tight, and it's meant to bring us into that. How can the Father love sinful people like us? It's a huge question that comes up every day for us, and it's all throughout Scripture. How does the Father love sinful people like us? His answer is that He sent Christ. He sent His Son. He sent Jesus. That is the true Christ. That's the Christ truth, maybe you could say. And so that's what makes the Antichrist lie so horrible, so deceptive, so dangerous. Because it's designed by the enemy to take something so incredibly wonderful and to convince you that it's mundane or boring, just kind of bleh. To get that nagging suspicion in your mind or heart that the Father's love, yeah, it's not that great for me today. And it's subtle, because you're probably not consciously aware of the way in which you're denying the theology of union with Christ in this way. Especially in our tradition, we're probably not going to do that consciously. But the way that we have misgivings about our own union with Christ, it comes subtly and maybe more practically in the particulars of your life. And maybe not even anything big, something small. For example, we're going to wake up tomorrow, okay? And maybe you're getting up with your alarm and you're not snoozing it a bunch of times and you realize that you have a few minutes before you have to actually get started for the day and you have some time to yourself. And if you're like me, sometimes you're tempted to and will actually just kind of take out your phone and go on to whatever it is for you, maybe Facebook or Instagram or whatever, and you'll start scrolling. And you'll scroll and you'll scroll and you'll scroll. And what are you doing? And maybe if you're like me, what you're doing there is you're looking for something of meaning, of value, of interest to spark your energy for the day, to help you get going, something meaningful to fill your time. And maybe you'll find that even though you find a few interesting things here and there, that nothing quite does it for you. And is is it possible that there's a nagging thought that kind of seeps in there that, you know what, I have the whole world at my fingertips and nothing's really that interesting today. Does that mean God the Father is disinterested or disinteresting? Maybe he's not that great. Maybe I'm participating in this implicit call for satisfaction and, and for being noticed and he's ignoring me. Maybe God is on his phone He's ignoring me. Maybe there's no point in me even praying to him because he wouldn't listen. And in our day-to-day experience, there's all these subtle ways in which that lie comes in and says the Father's love is not that great. It dissuades us from believing in Christ as the Son of God in that moment. What is it for you? What other examples could it be? Maybe it is something bigger, actually. Maybe it's a big source of pain in your life, relational turmoil. Maybe it's the job that you are struggling through and you don't feel like that's where you should be. Maybe it's some kind of identity crisis that you're going through. And you wonder why this is so hard. You wonder why life is such a struggle. What does it sound like when you, in those moments, question God the Father's love? 
And do you realize that when that's happening, that instead of having your focus zeroed in in those moments on the most wonderful news, the most wonderful thing in all the world, that the Father has literally shaken the world's foundations to love you and serve you and to bring you into his own love through his Son, instead of doing that, your thoughts are meh. No wonder the world seems destabilized to us when the most foundational reality in all the world is put off to the side and ignored. And this is what we do. And it really does make us vulnerable in this spiritual war that we're in. But again, God has not left us ill-equipped because the rest of this passage actually, is how God is at work right now to dissuade us of the lie that we would otherwise be believing. So we need to get on to our second point, anointing. We've talked about the Antichrist. Let's talk about anointing. Verses 20 and 21 is really where we get into that. You see, there are two things, basically, that this passage says will keep the Antichrist deception out of the lifeblood of your soul. And those two things are anointing, and we could also say the apostolic truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word. And the anointing is how God helps us to grasp this. The word anointed here is used also in Exodus to describe the anointing with oil of the various things that are in the tabernacle and the ceremonial system of worship. It's meant to, to set them aside for holy use. Uh, We're also told that the priests in the temple were anointed in a similar way to set them aside for their holy calling. So the picture here for us, I think, is of Jesus and the Father calling together a sacred celebration and pouring out, just like the sacred oil, pouring out the Holy Spirit on his people, symbolizing our purity and fitness to carry the truth of the gospel that the lies of the enemy can't touch. We are protected by this anointing, by the love of the Father, and we're entrusted, therefore, with the gospel of the love of the Father for us through Christ. You and I have been set apart. We've been anointed, made holy by the presence of the Spirit. We've been anointed, specifically, John says, to know the gospel. This isn't just an intellectual knowledge. This is a relational knowledge where we know not just basic points of doctrine, but we know God who gives us that content as well. We know him through Christ. We know the gospel. John is convinced that his readers know the gospel and that they know God. And as I was trying to make sense of this, it it sort of reminded me a little bit when I was younger throughout my schooling career, probably anywhere from middle school up until grad school, There would always be this moment that comes over the course of the semester where you're sitting in class and your teacher, your professor is up at the front and they're trying to encourage the class to make it over the finish line. And you're coming up on the final exam and the teacher has given you the study guide and she's saying, you know, class, you did a really great job this semester and you studied so hard and you did all your homework and you're so smart and I know that you're going to do a great job. I know it because you know this stuff. You know it. And I would often sit there thinking, uh, how do you know that I know this? Because I'm not so sure that I know this. You know, I never did this because I didn't have the courage, but I could have put up my hand and say, just so that we know, what about for those of us who didn't do the homework and who didn't study as much as we should have? And I looked over the study guide for about four and a half minutes. 
I don't think I know this, teacher, so please, do you tell me why I know this? That's not what's going on here, because John is convinced that they know, not based on their ability to have studied and to know the truth. This is actually not dependent on your goodness or on your ability to know something or what you have already done or are about to do. That's not what this is. He is convinced that you know that you are truly in the community based on the anointing of the Spirit that comes through faith in Christ, which is a guarantee. John writes to us, even in our instability and susceptibility to lies, to encourage us that you have a guaranteed spot in the family of God by faith in Jesus. And even if you don't feel like it, You're still in, and you have a home with the Father and with Christ. And every night, you get to come home to the dinner table of the Father, no matter how that day has gone, and you get to experience his welcome again and again and again. So what is this like? How does this really work for us to know the Father, to know Jesus, even though sometimes we aren't even sure if we do? I think it often works like a moment in John's gospel. And maybe some of you are familiar with this story. Maybe not the most famous words that Peter ever spoke, but some famous words that Peter spoke. And it happened just as some of Jesus' larger group of disciples left him after he said some controversial things. They didn't want to be with this teacher anymore. They didn't know him. They weren't truly committed to him. And after this happens, after the group of his disciples, the number is cut, we don't know by how much, but significantly, Jesus turns to the twelve and says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is the anatomy of the heart that's anointed by the Spirit. Do you see what's going on there? Peter is not at all saying, Lord, we have heard every word that you've said. We have studied them. We understand them perfectly. And we believe them without a single doubt. None of those things are true. What is true is that they have heard enough to know that from Jesus comes life like they've received from nowhere else. And they can't go anywhere to get it. If that's you, you know No matter what doubts you have, you know. You know. And so there's an important application that comes here with this. John says, you all have this knowledge. He's writing to the entire community, those who are mature and those who are immature. Just a few verses earlier, another possibly well-known part to you of 1 John, John goes through instructions for the immature, for the slightly more mature, and then for those that are mature. But he's kind of conflating all of them together and saying they all have this knowledge. You all know the truth. John is writing to a father figure to all of his spiritual children in the family, some who are at different points on the path, but they're on the same path. So if you're a new believer here this morning, you are not in a less stable position in the family of God. You have more growing to do than the more mature ones here, certainly. But you are not less stable. You are not less anointed by the Spirit. And if you are more mature in the faith here this morning, 
you, more than anyone else, probably should not be the ones looking at the community with suspicion and with cynicism, wondering who's about to leave. That's not how to treat those in your family. Instead, your example of faithfulness to be exposing the lies of the deceiver in your own mind and clinging to your knowledge of Christ, that example is what will truly help those who are less mature in the faith. That's how we should be living with one another in the family of God. And that brings us to our final point this morning, abiding. And I want to focus on verses 24 to 27 for this. Abide. John uses that word five times in these final four verses. It's one of his favorite words to use. He uses it elsewhere and also in his gospel that he wrote. And I think abide, in his mind, it refers to a quality in our life that we need in order to thrive in a deconstructing and unstable world. You see, to abide means to stay put, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be rooted. But it also refers to a life that being rooted is growing, okay? It's not just pure immovability. In other words, roadkill does not abide. It just stays and rots on the side of the road. A stump of a tree doesn't abide. It certainly stays there, but it left to itself, will decompose. What abides, in John's mind, are healthy branches attached to a living vine. In a very real sense, they are staying in the same place, but they're not deconstructing, they're not decomposing, they're not rotting, they're growing. In some ways, they're becoming just like the vine itself in their growth. That's the point. That's what it's supposed to do. And John says that the words of eternal life from Jesus, which is this apostolic truth, that other thing that helps us to stay in the truth, if they abide in you, because of the anointing of the Spirit, you will become like that vine. He describes this truth differently in the passage with different ways of saying it. He says the truth, that which you heard from the beginning, the truth that is in Jesus Christ, the truth that the Spirit taught you, Towards the end, he almost calls it the anti-lie. And this truth is so key for us. That's why it fills our worship services. That's why it should fill our minds. But there's an important thing that we have to realize here when it comes to abiding in the truth, understanding the truth, knowing the truth, loving the truth. And it might be a little bit of a sticking point. Because for John to say, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, As he writes it to his audience there, and also as we take it, he's not literally saying what you heard from Jesus, okay? Because even for his original audience, there's almost a 0% chance that the people that he's writing to actually heard with their own ears the words of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus. So from the very beginning, really, the church is reliant on the words of Jesus spoken through the apostles and also the prophets of the Old Testament. Our trust in the Word of God is practically tantamount to trusting the reliability of 12 men who carried the words of Jesus, the apostolic truth of Jesus, and disseminated it to the church. And that might be hard for you to get your head around. That might be a sticking point. Now, we believe that God is certainly able to preserve His truth through that process and down through the centuries. And we have the Bible as the living word of God. 
not because it comes down from heaven to us fresh every day, but because throughout history, he's preserved it for us. And the ultimate truth, the ultimate legitimizing factor for that is that the Bible does authenticate itself. If you read it, if you give the Bible a chance again and again and again, it will prove itself to be authoritative. John Stott says it this way, a Christian theology is anchored not only to certain historical events culminating in the saving career of Jesus, it certainly is, but it is also anchored to the authoritative apostolic witness to and interpretation of these events. You see, we really do need the Bible as the words of his prophets and apostles. That is how God gets his truth in us. And even if that is hard, let me say, give the Bible a chance. You will find that it is different than any other human writing. And I can't give you a mechanistic explanation of how that will work for you, but I can tell you that that forms the stories of millions, billions of people for 2,000 years of Christian history. And it's brought us here today. But let me also say this, as we dwell on this point a little bit more. And as we come to the end of the passage, John tells the remaining believers in this church that they have no need that anyone should teach them, which might have seemed like a weird thing to say, because there's a lot of teaching that goes on in a church after all. So what's that about? Well, I think it actually harkens back to the experience that they just had, because the group of people in that church that left and the leaders who were leading the movement and the new teaching that disagreed with the apostles' teaching and convinced a bunch of people to leave, this is probably what they were saying to those that remained. You guys aren't still believing in the apostolic teaching, are you? Those quaint and antiquated beliefs that Jesus is the Christ and that that's all you need to know? You actually need to be taught. You need better teachers. Sorry to break it to you. You need to go back to school. And by the way, we have that better truth. So trust us and come with us. We've got the truth. Hear that. Hear that. Because that is the claim of every cult leader ever. And that should also ring a bell. What about if I framed it this way? We've moved on from the Bible. We don't need the Bible anymore. It was good for a time. It was necessary for the cultural and societal evolution of humanity. But we're a scientific people now. This is post-enlightenment. We live in the time where everyone can access education. We don't need the Bible anymore. You know what this is? This is the we know more now narrative. This is the we know more now reasoning. And it's one of the most popular antichrist lies out there. The irony is that it's not new. It sounds like it's new, but it's not. It just gets repackaged. And let me tell you, it is meant to dissuade you of the Father's love for you. It's meant to dissuade you of his love for you in Christ. And John is saying, and if we can hear this this morning, it will help us abide. John is saying, deconstruct that. Deconstruct that. Because behind a thin and fragile veil of intellectual certainty, all that you will actually have in that kind of life is spiritual restlessness and fear. It sounds sophisticated and wise, but it leads you nowhere. Because what you essentially have to do is become your own apostle, figuring out the truth for yourself. Or even worse, trusting someone else's version of the truth, and they're not 
anywhere near qualified to be the arbiter of truth for you. So deconstruct that. But a little bit closer to home, there's a similar problem in the church as well. We might not be leaving the Christian faith altogether, but a kind of common thing that's been happening recently, and many of you, I'm sure, have heard stories that fit into this category, is that Christian churches are actually, it it happens pretty common that they elevate platforms of individual church leaders that are very gifted, but who don't have the character to match their gifts. So that when their teaching or their moral life falls apart, ultimately departing from the apostles' teaching. And sadly, it often presents itself in false teaching or abuses of one kind or another. In order to hold up a fraudulent ministry, we turn a blind eye. Or we use the institution of the church to shield and guard that leader from accountability of some kind. And it's amazing how churches can quickly become uh, cover-up machines for abuse, Or they can defend terrible theology just to prop up a successful ministry. Successful ministry is not worth departing from the apostles' teaching. Any lie that says that it is, we need to deconstruct. Maybe for us, that's what deconstruction needs to look like. So that we can raise up in its place more faithfulness to the apostolic teaching, more faithfulness to Christ, being closer to God, to destroy the lies of the evil one and glorify the Holy One, because that's our calling. And finally, may I just say that if you've been hit hard by stories of abuse in the church, whether if it's happened to you or you just see it all around and it's destabilizing and it's hard to make sense of, maybe it makes you think that some kind of deconstruction is in order. Well, in some ways, in the way that I just defined, yes, deconstruction is in order so that we can be closer to the truth. But as that happens for you, just make sure that you don't let someone else's departure from the apostolic truth lead you to depart. Make sure that you don't let someone else turning their back on Jesus cause you to turn your back on Jesus. Do you see the irony that that would be? Do you see how that would be fitting right into the lies of the enemy? You see, the church is actually still a really good place to do the the best kind of deconstruction because together, if we have doubts, if we have questions, we can do that together. I think our churches can and should be a safe place to ask these kinds of questions because at the end of the day, we still come back to Jesus saying, Lord, you have the words of life. And even if our deconstruction takes us down to the studs, If we're anointed by the Spirit, and if we have Christ, if we're coming back to the table of the Father at the end of every day, we will be rooted and grounded in that love. And according to His will and His providence, what will be built back up in its place will be something much more life-giving and beautiful. And so let's try to be that place. Let's try to be that place, whether for the mature or for the child, for the deconstructing or the strong. Let's abide in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are so full of grace and compassion. You have grace and compassion even for our doubts and for our weakness. You have equipped us for the battle even in the ways that would be our Achilles heel, our susceptibility to lies. You have given us the spirit. You have given us your truth and you keep us. 
Father, thank you that you do not demand perfection from us, but you allow us to serve you in our imperfection and weakness. And so would you, in the coming weeks and months, would you make your strength more powerful, even in the midst of our weakness? Would you use us to be lights in the darkness and to proclaim your truth to this world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.